well, welcome uh, once again. Uh, glad to be digging into his word together with you. Uh, uh, for those who are watching online, we are in part four of a series. And uh, I say that because if you missed the third, the first three parts of the series, you'd probably want to go back and listen to them before this one. Uh, and just to, to begin, they, they each sort of stand alone, but they build on one another. And so part four misses something if you don't have parts one, two, and three. We'll reference them briefly, but uh, uh, hopefully you can uh, take advantage of, uh, of um, listening to those as well. So we're actually in a series called Building a Biblical Worldview in 2022. And we're encouraging not only to um, not only to think uh, about our worldview, but to intentionally build it. Uh, the reason being that our worldview affects all of our actions and our interactions with our world. So it's really, really important how we see the world. And when we talk about worldview, we just compared it to glasses. You see through them. You don't always see them. And we're, we're saying in this series to kind of take off your worldview and take a look at it, examine it. Do we truly have a biblical worldview as followers of Jesus? We want to follow his example where he simply responded often throughout his ministry with scripture says, this is, this is my worldview. This is what it's based on. Not, not on what's going on right here and right now, but this is what scripture says. And we saw that last week as we talked about family and the, 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 the tension between the ideal and the real. And uh, I guess the challenge is this. Do you, do you have a biblical worldview about everything? Do we have a biblical worldview about everything? We should. We should, like we said, think Christianly about everything in life. Uh, and, and I mean, to, not down to, let's say, the specifics of, you know, Cheerios or granola, but, but to have this, the, when it comes to important matters of our, of our lives, that we would think Christianly about it. And, uh, you know, part of the, the thing is understanding that, you know, as we're looking at our own worldviews, realizing that others have their own worldviews as well. And a lot of the actions and interactions that are happening, they're, they're a direct result of their worldview. And so uh, their worldview can sometimes influence or impact our lives and, and our actions and interactions as well. And so today we actually want to talk about a, a, a pretty big topic um, called government. What is the biblical worldview when it comes to this topic of government? And for some, right away, this, this flag goes off. Wait, wait, isn't there a separation of church and state? I'm, I'm pretty sure there is, and I'd like to call that in right now. Because we don't talk about religion and politics, and we definitely don't talk about them together. But every once in a while, religion and politics, they find themselves crossing paths. Uh, and there's, there's times where, you know, the state and the church, their, pa- their, their paths cross. For instance, the gov- you know, the governing authorities, like the, like the, 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 the building department, you know, you want to get it, you want to build an, an addition. Uh, the, the government and the church, their paths cross in a way that they require the building codes and inspections, etc. And sometimes the state and the church, they're, they're, they collide. Their worldviews collide, like we've seen uh, recently in some of the things that have been passed in our country. Bill C-4, that's a collision of two worldviews. Um, abortion, which has been legal for years, um, made medical assistance in dying is another thing that has this, it has this crash course with, um, with the church or with faith. And, and so religion and politics, they, they mix more than we, uh, more than we think. And, and so we want to take a look at that. So just to be straight at, up from the top, this is not a political message. I'm going to have to say that a few times because I think when you hear government, you, it's so easy for us to think, oh, this is political, but it's not political. I, tonight, I don't actually want to tell you what to think. I simply want to encourage you to think. To just simply ask yourself, do I have a biblical worldview when it comes to the topic of government? Uh, 
And, um, you know, over the past couple of years, uh, the worldview of people in regards to government has been exposed big time. We, we, you found out, based on your actions and interactions, what, what your worldview of government is. We, we all have. Romans 13 has been quoted so, so many times over the last little while, you know, over the past couple of years. You, you know, everyone subject yourselves to government. Obey the government. You know, the, what would Jesus do? He would, he would obey the government and... And uh, so we've seen that worldview exposed. But, but the question I have to, to, to ask today is, is it biblical? Is that a biblical worldview? And so we're not going to look at a political thing, but we're going to look at the principle of this uh, tonight and uh, then, or today, whatever it is for you. And then uh, we're going to look at the, the practical side of it next week. So we're going to, you know, and, and just for reference, if you're looking for some more in-depth stuff on this, because my encouragement to you is to study, study the word first. But if you're like, man, this stuff, so much of this stuff was brand new to me and, and uh, I'd like some more, you know, I'd like to dig a little deeper. James Coates uh, from Grace Life Church has a, has a great message on January 2nd uh, of this year. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, inspired some of the content for this tonight, but uh, we're just going to take a look at scripture because like we always say, we're not a follower of James Coates. We're not a follower of any person. We're a follower of Jesus Christ. So let's jump into his word. And we're actually going to go to Romans 13. We're going to spend some time there just uh, just slowly looking through uh, how it was written, why it was written, who it was written to. So here's what it is. We're just going to read, we're going to read verses 1 to 7, and then we're going to go back and take a look at them. So Romans 13, verse 1, it says, Let every soul, every soul, remember that, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Well, then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he the authority. He is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, well then be afraid because he does not bear the sword in vain for he is God's minister or God's servant. He's an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Verse five, therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Why? Because they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And as you read this scripture, uh, you may read it in the, you know, in the light of uh, the culture of the day and think, you know, uh, Paul was writing saying, well, you must be subject to Nero as he writes to the Romans. Or maybe as you read it, you, you can't help but read it in today's current, current situation. You're like, you know, Paul was writing, we must be subject to the premier or we must be subject to the prime minister. Or maybe we simply just read it in the context of Scripture, where it's simply saying we must be subject. But what does that mean in the context, the whole context of Scripture, not just culture? And so we're going to look at a couple things we can learn from Romans 13 that I think are important for us to consider from a, um, from a biblical worldview. Number one, all earthly authority is designed by God. That's what we see you know, in Romans 13, 1 and 2, what does it say? It says there's no authority except for, or except from, it's except from God. And he says in all the authorities that exist, they're appointed by God. In the next verse, we realize that it's an ordinance of God. Paul, Paul writing to the, to the Roman believers, he's like, listen, government is a God idea. 
So as Jesus followers, we can't, like, we can't write off government. Uh, it's, a, it's a God-designed idea. And so tonight we want to take a look at what is that design meant to be? Last week we looked at the design for family. Remember we said, you know, that God in the beginning, if we're going to have God in our worldview, then we see God's design on the planet, God's design in nature, and we see God's design in humanity and in the family. We realized as well that in week two that God's design was perfect, but after that perfection, uh, we see man's brokenness through sin, and that sin has affected every single person. And so as we looked at the sphere of authority last week of Family, today we're looking at the sphere of government authority. And, you know, we've been reading through Exodus. If you're reading through the Bible with us, we're in, in Exodus right now. And it, it's interesting because we, we got to read the first part of Exodus, the first 19 chapters where Moses is like the, the 10 plagues. And it's, the, it's the, fun, the fun part where you see how God is so much more powerful than the most powerful ruler uh, in the world at that time who was Pharaoh. But then as we read, as we read, we get to the second half. And, you know, one of the, one of the people's comments was, What's up with all these rules and strange commands? And, you know, the next day it's just like boring. Like, when are we going to get to some more good stuff? And that's what happens as you read. But I think something that struck out and jumped out to me is that these commands were set up by God for a purpose. You know, that God had rescued the nation of Israel and called them his family. And then he gave them a set of godly laws. After he had made them his family, he's like, here's, here's some godly laws that had a purpose. You can find that in Exodus 20. It's where we find the Ten Commandments. But as you read through the Exodus, further through Exodus, further through Leviticus, you find all kinds of different things. And what were they for? We've, as we read through, you can pretty quickly see that their purpose was to protect the God-given rights and the God-given gifts that he had given to these people. He'd called them out. He had set them free. They were no longer slaves. They were no longer uh, under uh, tyrannical rule. They were, they were a, a free society, but they were a free society of broken people. And what we realized last week is broken begets broken. And so God looks at and says, how am I going to make sure these broken people don't destroy one another? Let me give them some godly codes of conduct, these godly laws that protect the gifts that I've given them. So what is it we see? He protects life when he makes the command, you shall not murder. That protects that, that right to life. He protects their right to own property. He's like, you shall not steal. That protects another person's property. He says, you shall not commit adultery. There's a protection over their relationships and their marriages. There's a protection of their freedom. In Exodus 21, we read about how they had to have a fair treatment and a release from sl- for slaves. Slaves, even if they had, you know, if, let's say they got themselves in debt and they couldn't pay the debt, they could sell themselves uh, as, as hired labor, as a slave, to uh, pay off their debt. But he says, after six years, you need to let them go. You don't get them for life. There, was this, there were these rules in place to protect their freedom, and then to protect their bodies, their bodily autonomy. Exodus 21, it just talks about if, if, the, if something happens to another person where it was like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you don't just get to harm someone else's body and not be responsible for that or accountable for that. These were what these things put in place. And, and even livelihood. I was just reading about how, you know, if, he said if you, uh, if you rent another man's ox and uh, it dies while you're plowing the fields, you owe him because you've just taken 
his, um, his, his um, means of livelihood, you, you, you owe him. But if he's working with you and you hired him to do it and his ox dies, well, then you don't because you already paid rent. And so there's like these, these like details in that. They said if a man came to you and, and he needed a loan and he, he gave you his coat as surety, you, um, uh, that he would repay the loan. He says, you actually have to give them the coat back by sunset even if they haven't paid it back yet, because you cannot take away his, possibly his only means of warmth that uh, he might not die in the night. Like there was this care for their, for their body, for their livelihood, for their freedom, for their property, for their life, and for their relationships. And we see godly laws protecting God-given rights. You know, in our second week, we talked about how people being so broken, broken by sin that, that even good laws don't always work for broken people. You know, the nation of Israel and every other person since then was not able to keep those Ten Commandments and all those other laws. And you might have this question, well, how are they good laws then if nobody can keep them? Like, ever tried to keep all the Ten Commandments? Like, nobody can do it. So how are those good? Well, that question was asked and it was even you know, put forth later on in, in, when Paul was writing the New Testament. And actually in this, in this letter to the Romans, he addresses it in Romans 7. He says, you know, the law, he says, it, it revealed sin in me. I didn't even know what sin was until the law came in. And it was like, it just exposed this sinfulness in me. And he's like, and he says, man, like part of me wants to say, well, then the law must be evil if it produces evil in me. But he, he goes on further to say in Romans 7 verse 12, he says, but still the law itself is holy, even though I couldn't keep it it's holy and its commands are holy and right and good. He's like, these God designed, this God designed law, even though I couldn't keep it, I, I look at it and say, it's intention and it's design and it's purpose. It's good. It's good. I can see that if people did live that, man, this place would be a really, really great place to, to be. And so as we look at this design, we realize that God designed a sphere of authority. And we started talking about this last week. And we talked about the sphere of family. We said there was different spheres that, that God designed. We have, we have family and then we have uh, the state, which would be government. God designed that, which we've just seen. Where in the nation of Israel, he set up this, these, these people to be overseers of, of the, the laws. And then later on, we'll look at how God designed the church as well in another week. But he designed these spheres of authority that would oversee and enforce, you know, godly laws. So, and they have, each one of these spheres has different authority, but the one in the middle, the state, uh, there, was, there was different titles for who that was. Throughout scripture, we see that, you know, there's a whole book called the judges. They were the ones who would rule and oversee the godly laws that they, that they were kept. Then the kings, it was later uh, kings. And after that, you read about magistrates. And in the New Testament, you read about the elders and the leaders of the, of the Jewish council and the Sanhedrin. They were these people who were there to make sure that those laws were kept. All of the things that God had said, hey, this is for your good. There was somebody who had the authority to enforce those. And that's what we would call government. And we realized it was God designed. And other nations came up with the same things. They realized, well, we need, you know, we need authority that's going to, to um, hold and govern and, and hold people accountable for these laws. You know, that sphere of authority, we also realize it was designed to bear the sword. We read in Romans 13, verse 3 and 4, it says, Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same. He's basically saying, you don't want trouble with the government. He's like, do the right thing. Do good things, and they're, they're going to leave you alone because that's, that's, that's the design for them. 
Verse four, he says, why? Because he's God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, then you should be afraid because he does not bear the sword in vain. See, God's design is that this, that sphere would bear the sword. That, it, that, that, that was the, the point. It was coming to bring punishment for bad behavior. They're designed to, to punish evil actions and to honor good actions. That, that's, that's how God designed it. It's actually for his purposes to make sure that there was this semblance of, of morality and the way people dealt with one another. And so, you know, as we look at this, this, this sphere, if we go back to that last uh, slide, the sphere of authority, where you see the three, we see that, you know, the, the, these, these three um, different spheres, we've got this one in the middle that's its design is to reach, to reach into the other spheres. That, that's how, what it's been designed to do. Um, so, for instance, it reaches into the, um, into the family. Sometimes it's going to reach into the family, not just, just, a, just in a little part. Remember last week we talked about the family has a specific authority? Sometimes the state reaches in. Why? Because there's abuse that goes on, which is against those things that the, the, the state is to protect, the freedom, the, 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 the body of uh, the individuals in that, in that family. You know, if there's, if there's physical abuse, if there's violence, if there's any kind of things like that, the state comes in and says, whoa, no, 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 we bear the sword in this area of your sphere. And then sometimes it happens in the, um, in the church as well. If there's evil actions that happen in the church, like embezzling money or there's abuse or whatever it may be, the state comes in and says, no, this is under our sphere. Like, <laughs> this is a crime. You're going to go to jail for that because that's what the state is designed to do. It's designed, it's designed by God to intervene in those places. And that's why we can't, uh, uh, you know, as a, as a person, there was always this thing of respect government because it's, it's God-designed. It's designed to punish evil actions and to honor good actions. But just like each of us individually, the people in those roles of authority, the people who are judges and kings and magistrates and rulers even today, they're broken people. They can have a worldview that affects their actions and interactions that's, that's not a biblical worldview that they don't understand that the reason they've been set to, to be in this role, they've lost sight of the godly design for it. And then they, they continue to, to um, live out that, that, that reaching with the, with the sword. And, and here's the question. Is it possible that a broken leader, a broken person, a broken evil person, which we said at the beginning of week two, is every one of us is broken and, and evil at heart. Is it possible that a broken ruler could come up with broken and evil laws? Is that possible? I, I would say for sure. You know, and the godly design is that that, that sphere would reach into the spheres and, and the lives of others. That, that's what it's designed to do. When there's, when there's evil deeds, it reaches in. But a version, a version of, of uh, um, that sphere that's got a broken worldview, a me-focused worldview, instead of reaching in, is going to overreach. It's going to try and take over everything. It's, it's, it's designed to reach. That, that's, that's its God-given design. But it, if it's not under a, under a God, um, if it's not lived out with its God-given purpose, it ends up just taking over or attempting to. A me-focused worldview in our lives leads to selfish and broken actions and interactions. A me-focused worldview in, uh, in government, it naturally results in tyranny. That's, well, that's just how that happens. And it's by design, but it's, it's, it's a broken use of that design. And that cycle of brokenness, 
It actually leads to a broken leader to, to think that they are God. That, that's what happens to the leader who allows that, that broken cycle to say, I'm not going to um, honor the godly design of this. I'm just going to keep, to keep going with, with how it's working. It actually destroys the leader. It's that thought of, well, I don't need God in my knowledge. I don't need God's design for government. I, I know what I'm doing, and, and, and here's what happens. So we see it all through Scripture. We see Caesar. Caesar thought he was a God. They called him divine. They actually called his son the son of a God. We see in, um, in Acts chapter 12 where, where Herod gives this amazing speech and all the people are like, those are the words not of a man but of a God. And he's like, yeah, I'm a God. And he dies shortly after uh, out of a judgment of the Lord. Then we see Pharaoh in Exodus. As we've been reading through that, he thought he is more powerful than the God of the universe. He's like, who's that God? I don't care. I am the most powerful. Well, we find out that he was misled. But it's that broken cycle of, of, of just thinking, um, to, that they can take over everything, they can be God, it actually leads to their own demise. It never goes well for them if they are able to continue in that cycle. And it's part of the reason why the church has to actually live out what Romans 13 is talking about. When we read Romans 13, it's not written to the sphere. It's not written to the, to the government sphere. It's written to every man. See that again, Romans 13, 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Do you know who every soul is? Every soul is me, and it's you, and it's the souls that occupy the positions of authority. That they themselves have to be subject to the governing authority. The way the, way the government was designed, they are to be subject to that as well. You know, last week we talked about prescriptive and descriptive where certain things tell us this is how you live and others are like, this is how it, this is how it should be done or this is how it shouldn't be done or here's, an exp- uh, here's a, a, a definition or description of it. We find both of those things in this verse. The first part, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. That is prescriptive. That's telling every individual, this is what you are to do. You are to order yourself under that authority because it's God-designed. But then it goes on to be descriptive, saying this is what it's supposed to look like. This is how it's supposed to work. It's not saying this is how it always works or you need to be subject to it regardless. It's saying this is what it's supposed to look like. And when it looks like this, you need to be um, subject to it. We saw that with Andre Schutten when he was here uh, uh, last year. He gave a talk called Liberty Lost and he told us about uh, Samuel Rutherford's book which was called Lex Rex, written in 1644. And Lex, the word Lex means law and the word Rex uh, means um, king. And so Lex Rex meant that, you know, the law is king. The law is over the king. The king is not, you know, not the opposite way around which was Rex Lex where the king is over the law or the king is law. Whatever the king says, well, that's what happens. And they said, no, no, the king is not, like the state is not the all authority over everything. There's, a, there's another authority over that. There is a king of kings. There is the Lord of lords. There, the, the, the one who designed authority is over all of that other authority. And so it's saying every individual, including the ones in those offices, are to be subject to that authority, including the king. So in, in a sense, it's saying, you know, there can't be a law for thee, but not for me. Where it's like, yeah, hey, I'm going to tell you guys, you have to do all this stuff, but I don't have to do it. That, that's not how godly law works. And so we think about, you know, examples from scripture. Where, where do we see this in scripture? We, we see it over and over as you begin to look. Think about Moses. 
Moses goes to Pharaoh. Moses goes to the authority of his day, the, the all authority, the one he is supposed to be subject to. And what does he do? He confronts that authority. He confronts um, Pharaoh saying, you are not, you are not God over everybody. You, he's calling Pharaoh to actually live out what, what government is supposed to do. You're not protecting the freedom of these people. You've actually put them in slavery. And he calls them to account and says, let those people go. Let those people go. He's actually calling out to, to his, his um, uh, sphere of authority to act and live under that design that it was meant to be. And of course, we know the story, Pharaoh doesn't let them go and, and experiences that judgment. We see Nathan, a prophet of the Lord, going to King David. King David, man, the guy after God's own heart. But he goes to King David. Why? Because King David had had an, adult, uh, had an affair with a woman and then realized she's pregnant. So he kills uh, or has her husband killed so he can marry her. She moves into the palace. She has a baby and everything's like he thinks he got away with it. And what happens? Nathan walks in and says, listen, as the governing authority, you're meant to protect their marriages, not destroy them. You are supposed to protect their bodies, not kill them, not take advantage of them. You were definitely supposed to protect that man's life and you set him up to be murdered. And he says, you're that man. And there was judgment in his life as a result. Then we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were forbidden from, uh, or who were, sorry, commanded to worship an idol by Nebuchadnezzar. We can read about in Daniel 3. And they, and they simply confront the, uh, their leader of their day by simply, we just won't. We will not bow to your, uh, to your image. Even though you, you command us to worship it, we will not comply. We will not bow down, period. Doesn't matter what you do to us, we won't do it. Why? Because we actually respond to a higher authority and you've stepped out of that realm. You don't get to command worship. Then we see it with Daniel. Even a little later in Daniel 6, Daniel's confront, um, told that there's a law that's been passed. You, you're not allowed to pray to anybody except King Darius. He's like, King Darius has stepped out of his role of governing authority. He doesn't realize that he's responsible to God. And so am I. As an individual, I'm responsible to God. So he doesn't subject himself to that authority. It's actually, he's forbidden to worship. And what does he do in Daniel 6.10? It says this, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, this is like, this is like the law of the land. He went home and he knelt down as usual. I, I just love that part. He goes and he knelts down, he kneels down as usual. He doesn't change what he was always doing. He continues to do that in his upstairs room with the windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, what just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. We see it again in the New Testament because you might, well, that's all Old Testament. New Testament, same thing. The disciples in Acts, they were confronted by the Jewish leaders and elders. You look up those words, it is the authorities of their day. They, they, they were under slavery from Rome, but they were the delegated authority that uh, was over the Jewish people. And they command these disciples, you're not allowed to preach in Jesus' name anymore. And they look at, and they, that, that famous statement, Acts 4.19, but Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? What are they saying? They're saying, you, you have an authority, but you have stepped outside of it. Your, your sphere of authority does not control this aspect of our lives. And they call them out on it and remind them that they have um, a designed authority that they are operating in. They remind them of that design. We, who are we supposed to listen to, God or you? So all authority, all earthly authority, it's designed by God. It is. And it's something we need, to, we need to respect and we need to be subject to. But here's the things that, they, that need to be understood. Number two, all earthly authority is delegated authority. 
It's delegated authority. It's not total authority. Not in any of those realms. We see this clearly in the interactions between Jesus and Pilate at his trial. John 19, John, an eyewitness of it, writes this. He, said, he writes about how Pilate took Jesus into the back room. It says, um, Pilate took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, where are you from? And Jesus gave no answer. He said, why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power or the authority to release you or to crucify you? He's like, that's, that's, my, that's my role. I'm here to bear the sword, meaning give punishment that's due for your crime. He's like, don't you realize that I have that authority? And here's Jesus' response. Jesus' response is, you would have no power, no authority over me at all, unless it were given to you from, the, from above. He says, so the one who handed me over to you actually has a greater sin. What's he saying to Pilate? He's saying, Pilate, you have authority, yeah, but you need to realize that authority is delegated from God. You're accountable to him for how you use that authority. And if you use that authority to condemn an innocent man, you've stepped outside of the role of what your authority, what you've been given authority to do. You are not to, to punish good. And I mean, if anybody was like a good man, like the perfect man, the one who deserved no punishment, it's Jesus. Like this is like, this is like the, the, the easiest test to pass. Do I judge him or not judge him? Is he a good man? Okay, he's a good man. Then what do I do with my sphere of authority? I'm supposed to punish evil. Can I punish him? No, I can't. But what does Pilate do? He goes and he washes his hands and he says, no, you know what? It's none of my, it's, this is out of my um, jurisdiction. I'm not doing anything with it. You guys do it. But Pilate's not absolved of that crime. You know, we see that even, even as he washes his hands, Jesus says, you know, these words to him before, the one who handed me over has the greater sin. He didn't say, Pilate, you know, oh, that's fine. You, you, there's no sin because you wash your hands of it. There's no abdicating that responsibility to somebody else. It's been God given to him to do the right thing in that moment. But a broken man makes a broken decision and the king of the world is crucified as a result. And we see that God's plan was at work there. We, we know that, 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 that God's plan was that Jesus would be crucified before the, end, before the foundation of the world. It was always going to happen. But the players in place, those weren't decided. Those weren't decided. Uh, the, the, they, they took their chances. They, they took those opportunities. You know, Jesus reminds Pilate that his authority was delegated to him. And the thing, the thing is, it's the same today. Every government authority has been delegated to them by God. They will give an account to him someday for how they use that authority. And so third, all earthly authority is not just designed it's not uh, just delegated. It's also limited, limited authority. Important for us to understand this. Um, you know, we see that Jesus understood this. The disciples understood this. Paul understood this. What did they understand? They understood the limited authority of any authority under God's authority. Let me say that again. They understood the limited authority of any authority under God's authority. There's two examples that we have from the life of Paul. And we will ch check these out before we uh, wrap it up tonight. Here's the... The two examples, you know, from the guy, just, just so you can get the context of this, this is from the guy who wrote Romans 13. The one who, you know, wrote, be subject to all the governing authorities. This is from Paul, uh, from Paul's uh, life. And so we, we can read in Acts, Luke, um, it's Luke's account. Luke was actually an eyewitness of these events. He was there. So it's not like, we've often said how Luke heard a whole lot of stuff from the gospel, but he traveled with Paul. He was there when these things happened and he writes them down in his journal. 
And, and we have them today. So there's a, Paul and Silas are traveling with Luke. And they, as they come to this place called Philippi, they find this young girl who's walking around telling people's fortunes. And, and uh, she's doing it with, but, um, by the power of a, of a demonic force. And so Paul and, and notices it. And uh, it actually says he gets so annoyed by the, what this girl is saying about them that he just casts this demon out of them. And because of the authority that Jesus gives him, that authority has to go. And so this girl is set free from torment. She's set free from slavery. But what we also find out is that she was making a ton of money for her masters. And once their God money had just been, you know, out the door with the demon, they get angry. They, they get furious and they stir up a mob in Philippi and they grab Paul and they grab Silas and they start beating them. And it says uh, that um, in, in verse 22 of Acts 16, it says a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas. And it says the city officials ordered them stripped, beaten with wooden rods, and they were severely beaten. And when they, then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered, make sure they don't escape. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon, clamped their feet in the stocks. We've read this story lots of times because we actually normally focus on a different part of the story. We focus on the next part where Paul and Silas are in there and they, you know, instead of complaining, they start singing hymns to God. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden they get, you know, they get set free. The prison shakes and all the chains come off. It's this amazing story. And we've, we've looked at that part of what Paul and Silas did many times. But I want to look at something else Paul and Silas did that we almost never see. And it's this. After all of the, all of the good stuff happened, here's Acts 16, verse 35. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, hey, let those guys go. So the jailer told Paul, ha, hey, you know, the city officials have said that you and Silas are free to leave. This is the jailer who had just come to Christ the night before. He would invited Paul into his home and he fed him and, and washed his sores. And he's like, guys, it gets better. They said you get to go. And he says to them, go in peace. What do we see? Verse 37. But Paul replied, They've publicly beaten us without a trial and they put us in prison and we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves and release us. And I'm like, if I'm the jailer, I'm like, whoa, come on. Wait a second, Paul. <laughs> just, just, just go, just get out of here. What if they do something different? He's like, no, no. They put us in here wrongfully. They're coming down here and they're going to take us out personally. And so the police went back and reported this to the city officials and they were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They just did this before they even asked any questions. Verse 39, so watch what happens. The officials came to the jail. They apologized to them. They brought them out and they begged them to leave the city and command them to. They couldn't. They didn't do any of these things. They said they came to the jail. They apologized. They brought them out and they begged them. Why? And maybe we're like, you're thinking, wait, what? <laughs> Paul, why aren't you subjecting yourself to the all authorities? Like you said in Romans 13, why didn't you just, you know, take what was coming to you and then just, just leave town and do what they told you to do? Because Paul's confronting their abuse of the sphere of authority they've been given. He's confronting the abuse of the sphere of authority they've been given. He's calling them as individuals to obey God's design for that sphere. He's calling them as individuals to subject themselves to the authority that, they've, that, that God has given them. He's calling the authorities of Roman law to actually obey Roman law. That the law that protects his freedom, his body, his livelihood, and his life, he's calling them to live up to what they've been called to do, to protect that. 
something that they had gone against. We see it again in Acts 22. Paul is rescued from a mob by the authorities to prevent him from being murdered, which is what they're supposed to do, right? They come in, they, they protect him. Uh, but then, then, they, they, then they want to find out, okay, so you just about got murdered by this crowd, and we don't know why they, they tried to murder you, but we want to find out. So they, they tie him up to the whipping post, and they're going to whip him so that they can get an answer out of him. You can read in Acts 22. Well, here's what happens in Acts 22, verse 25. When they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, you know, you can just picture, they've just rescued him, and now they're tying him up, they're about to whip him. He, says, he looks over, he's like, hey, is it legal for you guys to do this? You're going to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried. And the guy, you know, that big surly, you know, like Roman centurion is about to drop the, the, the cat of nine tails on his back. This powerful man, he's got this guy just at his mercy, but he stops. He stops. And people would want to ask, wait, Paul, why didn't you subject, subject yourself to the, uh, to, the, to the earthly authorities, to the governing authorities? Paul, this is, what, uh, this is what was supposed to happen to you. Why did you stand against it? You should have took your persecution. What would Jesus do, Paul? We see Paul just simply, once again, calling the authority back to the design that God had called them to, to their sphere of authority. He calls a Roman magistrate to follow Roman law. And so, I just, I want to ask you about this tonight with your biblical worldview. Have you considered this in your life? What does this look like in Canada? You know, there's a, tonight, there's actually a convoy of trucks, thousands of them making their way to, to our uh, uh, capital city to call a politician back to living under what the uh, guidelines of, uh, of government are to protect the freedoms and protect the rights of its citizens. So the question that we you know, asked at the beginning, should we obey every mandate and every law simply because the government says so? Should we obey every single one? And, and, and if so, then does that mean we end up obeying evil ones? And if not, where do we draw the line on what's good and what's evil? Do we follow an evil law so we don't get punished? You know, I think that we see some similar things, and, and I do, and I would encourage you to think about that. The, the Canadian Charter was actually written with the premise of this, whereas Canada is founded upon the principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Saying, hey, these, these, these laws that we have, that we originated with, they're based on the fact that, that they're God-designed, that, that they're meant to be subject to the authority of, of God, like the God of, the, of creation. And so the question we have to ask is, is the state still actively protecting the God-given gifts and rights it's been delegated to protect property, livelihood, body, freedom, life? And what should our response be from a biblical worldview if they're not? And I say this as we close, this is not a message of rebellion. It's not a message of revolution. It's not a message of anarchy. Not at all. Why? Because I think if we look closely, we just simply realize we see God's fingerprints all over that verse. All over those verses that, that the government is God's design. We see it in verses 3 and 4. You know, they're, they're not supposed to strike fear in those who are doing right, but those who are doing wrong. Would, would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what's right and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants. The government's God's servant. That's why he put it there. It's sent for your good. 
sent for your good. They're God's servants is sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. And so as he writes to the believers, he's reminding them that the, the government in its God design is there for their good. God's servants doing God's work in God's way, punishing those who do wrong, honoring those who do right. And we asked this question a couple of weeks ago, who gets to determine what's wrong and what is right? Who gets to say this is what's good and this is what's evil? And we said it's when you bring God back into the worldview, you get to bring the one who truly knows what good and evil are. And that's the call for us to say that we bring God back into our government to say as a government authority to realize God's design what's good and what's evil. Because what happens when broken men start to call evil good and call good evil or legislate evil as something that has to be now followed, which is what's happening with recent bills. If a man-made law goes against a God or goes against God's law, are we obligated to follow it? Or are we rather obligated to confront it for the sake of everyone affected by that law? But I'd also say for the sake of that leader, because a leader left to that, that broken cycle, it always goes negative for them. So final thoughts. You know, I believe that we're called to call that sphere of authority back under the lordship of Christ. It's the same as the church calls out to the family. The church calls out to government. The government sometimes steps in on the church, sometimes steps in on the family to, to make sure that those spheres of authority operate together. But the sphere of authority, that state sphere of authority does not have all authority over the family. And we talked about that last week. The sphere of authority does not have all authority over the church. It cannot decide, you know, how worship's going to be or what you're allowed to speak from, from God's word or what's truth. That they, They're not allowed. That That's out of that realm of authority. They do not have all authority over the individual. You are, you are created in the image of God. A sovereign being given sovereignty over your body and over who you are as a person. They do not have the right to have all authority over that. That's an abuse of that. But when that happens, they need to be called back to that place. So in closing, as an individual, do you have a biblical worldview when it comes to government authority? Do you have a biblical worldview? Maybe as you were reading, you're like, you know, I have a different view than you. And, and like we said before, please don't cancel me as a result. Would you instead encourage, challenge, um, send me some uh, scripture to, uh, via email that just says, hey, this is, this is what it should look like. But what about the other spheres of family and church and, and, and government? Do we have a biblical worldview of it? And what do we do is we say, you know, as the church, a responsibility to call out to those spheres of authority <laughs> to come back under, under the recognition of the authority of God and to live out their design. We see Paul writing to Timothy and he says this. That's why I say, Timothy, pray this way for kings. Pray for all who are in authority. Why? So we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. He's like, hey, this is the response of the church. It's yes, for sure, pray, pray. But there's also that the, 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 the calling them to live under um, the design that God's given them, to call them to be subject to the authorities just like every other man. I hope today has stirred some thoughts for you, if anything, that drives you to dig into his word and say, oh, I want to prove that guy wrong and go through. I, I would love that. I would love that and then send it to me. I've wrestled with this for, for a long time. But to, to, and, and hopefully our questions help you get there. So here they are. Number one, what jumped out at you from today's talk? Number two, do you, do you think you have or do you have a biblical worldview of government? Why or why not? And I hope today's kind of maybe triggered. You say, ah, I got to take a look at that. 
And then third, do you think Romans 13 demands ultimate obedience to government at all times? And I would say again, why or why not? And the fourth one, how would you back that up with scripture? And then finally, you know, we always have, you know, something to pray about. I love it. Zane changed my thought on there. He's like, let's pray for our leaders today. Man, I would encourage you in a time, uh, especially in our nation where things are uh, are in in, in a sketchy places sometimes, that we would be truly having a biblical worldview for one, which includes being obedient to that and praying for our leaders. So why don't we uh, close tonight in prayer and then I'll encourage you to, to spend some time chatting about this in your small groups or in, with others uh, and digging into the word with Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, the truth of your word that it's, uh, it's prescriptive for our life as well as descriptive of what's gone on before us, what we've seen and what we can learn from. Father, I just pray uh, even at this moment, it's a different time and where each person is hearing it some for the first time, some it's, it's, it's a building block. Lord, would you do what we can't? I just ask that you would lead and guide us into truth as individuals, as your church. We pray for our country right now. We pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. Lord, of each of the different uh, roles of government and authority, God, I just pray this over them, that, that they would be, whether through the, uh, whichever voice it is, called back, to your design for their life and for their office, that we would be as believers able to subject ourselves to a godly authority. God, I thank you for something even more than that, just that you've rescued us, that you've called us to another kingdom, that you've brought us into your kingdom, the kingdom of your son, by giving your life for us. No matter what happens here, we're so grateful that uh, our eternity is set with you the chance to know you and be known by you. God, it's incredible. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for loving us. Just pray this in your name and for your honor. Amen. Amen. Well, happy digging and we will see you again soon.